Hello, I'm Wilson Pruitt, and you are listening to the History of Methodism podcast. You can support us online at patreon.com slash historyofmethodism. Today's episode, The Trial of John Wesley. In our last episode, we covered the early days of John Wesley's relationship with Sophie Hopke and his ministry in Georgia, up until Sophie's engagement to William Williamson on March 8th, 1737. We will pick up the story there. When John first heard the news of Sophie's engagement to Mr. Williamson, he was challenged by a notion that were he to propose to her at that moment, she would change engagements to him. But he writes that it was the one thing he could not do. And he says that he went home full of perplexity. The next day, he saw Sophie and her fiancé. Sophie tried to keep things as they were, but John was having none of it. From his writings, John seems exceedingly stiff and stilted in the moment. He refused to marry them when Mr. Williamson asked him, or even bless their marriage. John writes, quote, From the beginning of my life to this hour, I had not known one such as this. God let loose my inordinate affection upon me, and the poison thereof drank up my spirit. I was as stupid as if but half awake, and yet in the sharpest pain I ever felt. Yet one way remained, to seek God, a very present help in time of trouble. I could not pray. Then indeed the snares of death were about me. The pains of hell overtook me. Yet I struggled for life. Wesley quotes the Greek scriptures here, inciting Romans 8.26. Stenagmois alalatois, or with unspeakable groanings. About four o'clock, God so far took the cup from me that I drank so deeply of it no more. John then wrote to Sophie's uncle, Mr. Coston, advising against the marriage. The next day, he saw Mr. Williamson again with Sophie. John read from Bishop Hall's Meditation on Heaven as a group gathered around him. Afterward, Williamson said that he would be glad for John's advice. John said, I hope we shall all be happy together in the place we have been reading of, that is, heaven. On March 12, 1737, four days after their engagement, in Perrysburg, Sophie and William Williamson were married by a rival pastor, as was Miss Bovey, with whom John also spent a lot of time. She married a Mr. Burnside. In his diary for the day, Wesley notes, Today, Miss Bovey and Miss Sophie were married at Perrysburg. He rated his grace a seven three times that day. On March 13th, a Sunday, John noted the absence of Sophie at worship in his diary. The next day, at prayers, Sophie was present, but John marks in his diary, lively, zeal, pain. On March 15th, everything changes. Mr. Williamson came to John's house very angry. He tells John that Sophie will not come to his house anymore and that Sophie asked Mr. Williamson not to go for fear that John would murder him. Something took place in those intervening days of which John is in the dark. 
But Mr. Williamson never looked at John as an ally again. My speculation is that in that time since the marriage, Sophie conveyed the depth of her affection for John, and Mr. Williamson became very reasonably jealous. But again, this is pure speculation. Four days later, John met with Sophie and Miss Bovey, now Mrs. Burnside. John tried to understand the situation, and Sophie said that her husband was confused. It was not John, but Mr. Mellishamp's friends who were dangerous. Mellishamp being the criminal to whom she had had a prior relationship. The next day, Sophie came to communion, but she said to John that her husband thinks talking to John makes her uneasy. So Mr. Williamson advises against her seeing him. John doesn't talk to Sophie until April 8th. In the meantime, he had given advice to the former Miss Bovey to convey spiritual instructions to Sophie. They all had a longer conversation in public on the 8th of April, Good Friday, in which John gave her the advice, quote, In things of an indifferent nature, you can't be too obedient to your husband. But if his will should be contrary to the will of God, you are to obey God rather than man. He also noted that she fasted that day. On the following day, John saw Sophie again. She clarified that Mr. Williamson did not find John to cause her unease, but that Mr. Williamson worried that talking to John would make Sophie too strict. This is an entirely believable conversation. It is easy to imagine someone marrying Sophie Hofke and finding out that she took her religion very seriously because of the influence of this peculiar pastor, realizing that that strictness would make their marital relationship different than he had expected. In May, John begins to reflect about whether he could admit Sophie to communion. He writes in his journal account that he, quote, was in doubt whether I could admit her to the communion till she had in some manner or other owned her fault and declared her repentance of it. I doubted the more because I was informed she had left off fasting and because she neglected all the morning prayers, though still acknowledging her obligation to both, which made a wide difference between her neglect and that of others. John then says he will bear with her till he has a chance to speak directly on the topic. Sophie showed up at morning prayers on Thursday, May 11th, which John noted in his diary with an exclamation point. He then began writing what he calls Miss Sophie's case. He worked on it for much of the rest of the day and then for the morning of the following day and every day until May 16th, when he had a chance to speak to her again. He writes in the journal that he, quote, earnestly exhorted her to avoid all insincerity as she would avoid fire, to hold fast all the means of grace, and never to give way to so vain a thought as that she could attain the end without them. I hoped my labor was not in vain, for she promised fair and appeared deeply serious, end quote. Life continued for John. On May 27th, Mrs. Coston, Sophie's aunt, became ill, and John spent time at the house with her and her husband, the important Mr. Coston, 
to which he was still on good terms. John doesn't mention Sophie in his diary until May 30th, when he notes that she was not there for the noon sacrament. The following Saturday, he strikes up a conversation with a Mrs. Brownfield about Sophie that causes him to write in his journal that, quote, God showed me yet more of the greatness of my deliverance by opening to me a new and unexpected scene of Miss Sophie's dissimulation. Oh, never give me over to my own heart's desires, nor let me follow my own imagination. After the story of Mrs. Brownfield, John felt that Sophie had lied to him concerning her relations to Mr. Mellishamp, but John still conceded that he should admit her to communion. In June, the beginnings of a fissure between John and Mr. Coston come up over a vague incident where Coston accuses John of joining with his enemies. The matter settles quickly, and John is ministering to Coston after a fever in two weeks' time. But the fissure, once started, could only grow. Sophie is nowhere to be found in the diaries of June. In July, John begins to note Sophie's absence from communion. He calls it a new hindrance in that Sophie won't admit herself. On July 3rd, after the sacrament, to which Sophie did not attend, John confronted her about her absences and she pled innocence. John then went to Mr. Burnside, the husband of Sophie's friend, Miss Bovey, and pled his case. Burnside confirmed Wesley's thoughts that he should bar her from communion if she did not repent. John wished to be more direct with Sophie, but he could not find her. He then wrote a letter to Mr. Coston, which said the following. Sir, to this hour you have shown yourself my friend. I ever have and ever shall acknowledge it. And it is my earnest desire that he who hath hitherto given me this blessing would continue it still. But this cannot be unless you will allow me one request, which is not so easy as it appears. Don't condemn me for doing in the execution of my office what I think it my duty to do. If you can prevail upon yourself to allow me this, even when I act without respect of persons, I'm persuaded there will never be, at least not long, any misunderstandings between us. For even those who seek it shall, I trust, find no occasion against me, except it be concerning the law of my God." John then wrote the following note to Sophie. If the sincerity of friendship is best to be known from the painful offices, then there could not be a stronger proof of mine than that I gave you on Sunday, except this which I am going to give you now, in which you may perhaps equally misinterpret. Would you know what I dislike in your past and present behavior? You have always heard my thoughts as freely as you ask them, nay, much more freely. You know it well, and so you shall do, as long as I can speak or write. In your present behavior, I dislike, one, your neglect of half the public service, which no man living can oblige you to, two, your neglect of fasting, which you once knew to be a help to the mind without any prejudice to the body, three, your neglect of almost half the opportunities of communicating which you have lately had. But these things are small in comparison of what I dislike in your past behavior, for one, you told me over and over you had entirely conquered your inclination to Mr. Mellishamp, yet at that very time you had not conquered it. Two, you told me frequently you had no design to marry Mr. Williamson, yet at the very time you spoke, you had that design. Three, 
in order to conceal both these things from me, you went through a course of deliberate dissimulation. Oh, how fallen, how changed. Surely there was a time when in Miss Sophie's lips there was no guile. Own these facts and own your fault, and you will be in my thoughts as if they had never been. If you are otherwise minded, I shall still be your friend, though I can't expect you should be mine. The next day, Costin came to John, confused by his letter. John said it had to do with a family member not being admitted to communion. Costin said that as long as it wasn't his wife or himself, they could take care of themselves. On July 11th, Sophie had a miscarriage. Mrs. Costin told John, and she blamed him because of his letter to her. John doesn't note the exchange in his diary. After some travels the rest of July, John returns to Savannah on August 3rd. On Sunday, August 7th, five months after her marriage to Mr. Williamson, John repels Sophie from Holy Communion. He writes in his journal that it was because of the reasons he noted in his letter from July 5th, as well as because she did not give him notice. That evening, Sophie expressed anger at John to her friend, Mrs. Burnside. Mrs. Burnside tells Sophie, You was much to blame, but you may easily put an end to this by going to Mr. Wesley now and clearing yourself of what you are charged with. Sophie's reply, according to John, was, No, I will not show such a meanness of spirit as to speak to him about it myself, but somebody else shall. The following day, a warrant was written. Quote, to all constables, tithing men, and others whom these may concern, you and each of you are hereby required to take the body of John Wesley Clerk and bring him before one of the bailiffs of the said town to answer the complaint of William Williamson and Sophia, his wife, for defaming the said Sophia and refusing to administer to her the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in a public congregation without cause by which the said William Williamson is damaged 1,000 pounds sterling. And for so doing, this is your warrant, certifying what you are to do in the premises, given under my hand and seal, the 8th day of August, Anno Domine, 1737. In the currency of today, the fine of 1,000 pounds would be worth around $275,000. The following day, John was served the warrant and taken before the bailiff with the specific charges that he had defamed Mr. Williamson's wife and that he causelessly repelled her from communion. John denied the first charge and then claimed that only an ecclesiastical court could prosecute the second, so he did not acknowledge it at all. That same day, Mr. Williamson posted an advertisement in Savannah that if anyone helped John out of the colony, that person would be liable to the charges against John. John also received a letter from Mr. Coston that seemed civil at first, but was in reality a letter to the trustees in England. John didn't know how to respond and asked for a private accommodation to the matter. On August 11th, Mr. Coston came to John's house and was far rougher about everything leading to Costin screaming, I will not rest till I have revenge. John attempted to quell the situation by writing to Sophie again and explaining his actions, 
John quotes directly from the Book of Common Prayer and saying, quote, So many as intend to be partakers of the Holy Communion shall signify their names to the curate at least some time the day before. And then, And if any of those, having done any wrong to his neighbors by word or deed, so that the congregation be hereby offended, the curate shall advertise him that in any wise he presume not to come to the Lord's table until he hath openly declared himself to have truly repented. No one was convinced by these arguments. The following day, Mr. Coston read out loud all the letters John wrote to Sophie or to himself. Some of John's friends started to turn against him. Coston tried to get Mr. Burnside, who clerked for the trustees, to sign a document against John, but Burnside wouldn't do it. The next tactic of Mr. Coston was to avail himself to all potential grand jury members. He did so by forgiving all debts and giving away items from his store. He and his wife also refused to go to church while John was there. It was then that John saw a lengthy affidavit signed by Sophie, which accused John of many things. Wesley was able to get Mr. and Mrs. Burns to testify in favor of him, which gave him a little support. August 22nd was the day of the trial, and John was confronted by charges of a nature far beyond the scope in which he had prepared himself. There were 44 members of the grand jury, and Mr. Coston both presided as magistrate and gave the charges. Savannah, this day of August 1737, that whereas the colony of Georgia is composed of a mixed number of Christians, members of the Church of England, and dissenters, who all or most part would attend divine ordinances and communicate with the faithful pastor of the established church, the Reverend Mr. John Wesley, who for the present serves the cure of Savannah, has not, as the law directs, omitted any declaration in this place of his adherence to the principles of the Church of England. We have the more reason to complain of grievances that the said reverend person, as we humbly conceive, deviates from the principles and regulations of the established church in many particulars, inconsistent with the happiness and prosperity of this colony, as 1. By inverting the order and method of the liturgy. 2 by changing or altering such passages as he thinks proper in the version of psalms publicly authorized to be sung in the church. 3. By introducing into the church and service at the altar compositions of psalms and hymns not inspected or authorized by any proper judicature. 4. By introducing novelties such as dipping infants, etc., in the sacrament of baptism, in refusing to baptize the children of such as will not submit to his innovations. 5. By restricting the benefit of the Lord's Supper to a small number of persons and refusing it to all others who will not conform to a grievous set of penances, confessions, mortifications, and constant attendance of early and late hours of prayer, very inconsistent with the labor and employments of the colony. 6. By administering the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to boys ignorant and unqualified, and that notwithstanding of their parents and nearest friends remonstrating against it, and accusing them of disobedience and other crimes, etc. 7. By refusing to administrate the holy sacrament to well-disposed and well-living persons, unless they should submit to confessions and penances for crimes which they utterly refuse and whereof no evidence is offered. 
8. By venting sundry uncharitable expressions of all who differ from him, and not pronouncing the benediction in church until all the hearers, except his own communicants, are withdrawn. 9. By teaching wives and servants that they ought absolutely to follow the course of mortification, fastings, and diets of prayers prescribed by him, without any regard to the interest of their private families, or the commands of their respective husbands and masters. 10. By refusing the office of the dead to such as did not communicate with him, or leaving out such parts of that service as he thought proper. 11. By searching into and meddling with the affairs of private families, by means of servants and spies employed by him for that purpose, whereby the peace both of public and private life is much endangered. And finally, 12. By calling himself ordinary, and thereby claiming a jurisdiction which we believe is not due to him, and whereby we should be precluded from access to redress by any superior jurisdiction. We do with all respect and deference to the person and character of the Reverend Mr. John Wesley present these our grievances, not from any resentment, but only that such relief may be afforded in time coming, as shall be judged necessary for the interest of peace and religion in this province. Mr. Williamson testified in the afternoon of August 22nd, and then the Costins the following day. Sophie testified that she had had no objections to John before her wedding. On Wednesday the 24th, the grand jury moved on to look into the ecclesiastical matters, and this is where John felt the tide turn. Mr. Costin played himself and turned more than half of the jury against him, so that they began to look anew at all the grievances. But Mr. Costin held out, and the grand jury delivered ten indictments against John on September 1st, which he summarized in the following way. 1. By writing and speaking to Mrs. Williamson against her husband's consent. 2. By repelling her from the Holy Communion. 3. By dividing the morning service on Sunday. 4. By not declaring any adherence to the Church of England. 5. By refusing to baptize Mr. Parker's child by sprinkling unless the parents would certify it was weak. 6. By repelling Mr. Gow from the Holy Communion. 7. By refusing to read the burial service over Nathaniel Polehill and Anabaptist. 8. By calling myself Ordinary of Savannah. 9. By refusing to receive William Aglioni as a godfather because he was not a communicant. 10. By refusing Jacob Matthews for the same reason. John responded the following day, saying, quote, As to nine of the ten indictments against me, I know this court can take no cognizance of them, they being matters of an ecclesiastical nature, and this not being an ecclesiastical court. But the tenth concerning my speaking and writing to Mrs. Williamson is of a secular nature, and this, therefore, I desire may be tried here, where the facts complained of were committed. John then moved to have an immediate trial. His friend, Delamont, thought John should get back to England as soon as possible. But on September 10th, John, quote, laid aside the thoughts of going to England, thinking more suitable to my calling, still to commit my cause to God, and not to be in haste to justify myself. John didn't flee America. He stayed because he still thought his cause and actions just. As well...
As these charges show, and as the warrant showed, the issues at stake weren't just about John and Sophie, but many others going on in the colony. The next Sunday, John read the very same document in church that he read on his first Sunday in Savannah in March of 1736. The following day, 12 members of the grand jury wrote to the trustees that they had already changed their mind and come to the opinion that Mr. Wesley was innocent of all charges and that the whole affair was an artifice of Mr. Coston to blacken Wesley's character. It is at this point that the whole matter goes out, not with a bang, but with a whimper. The diary account breaks off at this time, and all we have is the journal, wherein not much happens for another month. At the end of November, John meets with Coston, and they attempt a civil compromise. During the conversation, a Mr. Anderson told John that a court had stated that he was, quote, an enemy to and hinderer of the public peace. John leaves the meeting peacefully, but the next day he tells Coston that he, quote, did not think it proper for a hinderer of the public's peace to stay in the place where he was so, and that I designed to set out for England immediately. On December 2nd, the magistrates, which included Coston, published a warrant keeping John from leaving. This time, John ignores it. He heads out towards Port Royal, then Charleston, then home to England. We have gone over a lot of details of the trial and its aftermath, details that are often ignored in accounting for the last weeks of John Wesley's ministry in Georgia. The whole thing does not end well. But John also didn't flee after his actions against Sophie. According to the 1662 prayer book, he was well within his rights as a curate. When the trustees of Georgia addressed the issue of his trial in December, they came to the same conclusion. The issue for the trustees was the tension in the colony and the division between those who sided with Coston and those with Wesley. Wesley landed in England on February 1st, 1738. On April 26th, he left his documents of appointment to Savannah with the trustees. Thus, he officially resigned. John was not the same man when he returned, and England was not the same place. But before we get to those vital first four months in England, between landing and Aldersgate, we must return to Georgia one last time to see how John was shaped theologically by the experience. Next time on the History of Methodism. Thank you.